Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring you a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Nate Lachtman, to discuss DTC telemedicine and how companies are engaging consumers without the traditional brick-and-mortar model. Take it away, Nate. Thanks, Judy, for that introduction. With me is a particularly distinguished guest, Quinn Sheehan, Managing Director at Tusk Strategies. Quinn provides regulatory advisory services and devises and implements solutions for clients to achieve their mission, including engagements in telehealth and technology sector. So I definitely have heard you speak at conferences um, on telehealth and DTC services and just generally talk shop in the industry. But I would presume that most of our listeners haven't met you yet. Uh, Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Tusk. I am currently at Tusk and I work as a regulatory and policy advisor to both large corporations as well as startups. My initial background is I worked in politics for about three years um, on state campaigns. And when I did that, um, my favorite types of projects always were kind of around health policy. Um, I then practiced law for about five years at two major law firms doing pharmaceutical and medical device work, um, primarily product liability on the defense side. And I had the opportunity to join Tusk. I had worked with our founder, uh, Bradley Tusk, back in my political days. And when he offered me the opportunity to uh, get out of the law firm and try something new, um, of which I really wasn't sure what I'd be doing, I said, that sounds good. Tusk is an interesting model. We started out as a company that served as a political and regulatory strategist for large corporations. If you were a corporation and you were facing a tax issue in many different states, we would come up with a strategy, build the team on the ground, and run a campaign to you know, either fight it or support it, depending on what the issue was. And our founder realized that you know, this model and how we work was particularly well-suited to startups who are often you know, fighting entrenched interests or incumbents, their innovations might not align with whatever the current regulatory structure was. He was brought on as Uber's first political consultant about eight years ago. Um, that went well and decided to you know, expand the practice to also be advising these types of entities. So you know, both with startups and big corporations, we do everything from shaping policy helping them tackle regulatory hurdles, helping with communication strategy, supporting opposing legislation, securing partnerships, um, working on procurement. The CEO might get all the attention for the idea, right? But the team behind the idea, is that you? Is that fair to say? <laughs> no, we have a great team here. And it's it's a lot of people that formerly worked in government who you know, knows how regulators and government and legislators think. You know, when I was practicing... I was a litigator, you know, you only have a certain number of tools at your disposal, right, within the confines of, of how the legal system operates. And what I loved about this is when we form campaigns or we're helping companies trying to shape and change regulations, you know, your toolbox is kind of endless. So 
you know, no ideas too far out there. It allows you to be really creative. What is uh, DTC medicine and where do you think it fits into the healthcare industry at large? You ask a really good question. And what is DTC telemedicine? Because I don't, I don't know how much that's been kind of unpacked yet before we go on to kind of what are the benefits and questions we have about that model. DTC telemedicine is being framed as kind of the new rise of companies that are engaging with patients directly without a brick and mortar presence um, and often in a integrated model that combines everything from the patient initiation, diagnosis, treatment, and then ultimately prescription fulfillment for those customers that want it. The concept of DTC is not entirely new, in my opinion. I see it as these companies are building on a kind of established infrastructure of initiating care um, directly with patients and and meeting them where they are. So a different way of approaching medical services, really. I think they've t- what they've done well, if we're talking about this kind of new crop of venture-backed companies, um, is they've taken, as I said, different elements of established, approved-upon infrastructure. So everything's like asynchronous structured interviews that we'd seen health systems do, um, ideas of mail order pharmacy fulfillment that we'd seen pharmacy companies being able to do. And then they've incorporated that with a customer experience that's really personalized to users, which is kind of where patients as consumers are right now. Um, and they've, they've done that very well. And they've found a way to bring in new uh, patients into the healthcare system or patients who've been away from the healthcare system for a while. Um, so I, I think the new part of, of this model that we're seeing is really the integration of everything the ways that they have been able to engage new patients in this mode of healthcare delivery. Well, it's certainly popular, right? And uh, I would think that, you know, traditional hospitals and medical groups have been advertising, right? Uh, They put up billboards, they take out ads and newspaper, they send letters to people's house saying, hey, I'm going to do a chat at the library. Why don't you learn about (laughs) spinal fusion? But it's nothing of the type of scale or... um, almost like a hockey stick in the popularity of this DTC telehealth. Like, what do you, what do you attribute to that rise in popularity? You know, I think it's a confluence of things. So we've already seen healthcare generally finding more appeal in the, you know, for lack of a better term, the convenient care market, right? We've seen the rise of urgent care clinics. We've seen retail care clinics. And we've seen, you know, alongside that, so you know, care outside maybe the traditional brick and mortar uh, primary care physician. But alongside that, we've also seen uh, customers or patients being asked to take more control over their own health care through various ways, being more in the driver's seat of what they having to uh, make decisions, but also pay out of pocket. Um, and then, you know, kind of the third part of that is we're seeing a more informed populace across the sphere of, of wanting to be more accountable about their own health, but make decisions. What do you think about the advertisements for DTC telehealth as compared to maybe just traditional um, brick and mortar medical practices? You know, how are they doing it different than maybe better or worse? I think one of the things I would say about sometimes coverage of this space of DTC generally is 
you know, some are taking more risks than others. So it's hard to necessarily generalize. What I do think that they're doing is they are speaking directly to patients and they're using, you know, marketing techniques that have, that have been taken up, you know, across a variety of industries in this new, you know, digital space. And they're meeting patients where they are by talking about things sometimes in a way that breaks down stigmas. A lot of these are addressing stigmatized conditions. But I think also when we think about the marketing, we need to make sure that whatever critiques or questions we might have about marketing, those don't necessarily equate to poor care delivery. And I think there's been a conflation of the two that, you know, if you're uncomfortable with how somebody is marketing on a subway or reaching patients that way, that therefore they're receiving substandard care. You know, I, I think that's a misplaced criticism. Be interested, interested in what you think. I mean, where do you think the marketing comes out? I think they're doing a great job. I think health plans for years have been pulling out their hair saying, please engage with your primary right. care. Go to your doctor. Don't let conditions go untreated. And now finally, we have a wave of healthcare companies saying, you know what? They're right. Let's do a better job getting people excited, getting people engaged um, for medical care. Now, it may be condition-specific or nuanced uh, on this sort of 1.0 wave, but there's a multitude of DTC telehealth companies that are offering uh, basically you know, primary care or concierge complete, right. complete care offerings. Right. And I think, you know, Anne Mont Johnson made this point earlier this year when she, uh, she wrote like a short, pithy, great blog post that, you know, what can we learn about the ways these companies are engaging people? You can still ask questions you know, saying, here are my concerns, or this is where I'm uncomfortable, or what about this? Those are fair questions, but we can't just have skepticism about something and about the care based on how they're bringing patients into the fold. Well, what if, what if it just shut down? What if uh, all that DTC advertising stopped? What would happen with the patients? So this is a great question. I think often when we have these criticisms about the DTC companies, there's this myth, and we can talk about myths later, but there's a myth that the alternative to the care that they're providing is necessarily going to be in-person care. And that's just not true. It's more likely than not going to be no care at all. So we are missing the opportunity to have people you know, take control of their health, speak with a physician or a clinician, and figure out what actionable next steps might be. I think there's a real lost opportunity to engage with, with new markets, build access, and take some lessons from what these companies are doing to bring more patients into the fold. Do you think that the more DTC telehealth uh, companies become available to patients, you think that's going to remove uh, primary care physicians from the equation? Will it cause patients not to see their PCP anymore? If, if we're just talking about more um, care, DTC care options across the spectrum, right? So not DTC, a primary care provider. Um, right now, a lot of the condition-specific companies or those that only you know treat a couple of conditions do see themselves as a complement and not a replacement to the primary care physician. So I think one thing going forward and that I hope is the next iteration of these companies will, will be how do they work in coordination with primary care physicians? You know, how, do, how does that handoff work? How does follow-up work to encourage a primary care relationship? Going back to the lessons learned or, or where PCPs can, can get in the market, I see what the 
direct to consumer with the full integration and what they've been able to do in bringing in new patients, I see that more as the future of care. So I think more primary care physicians should be thinking about, you know, both ways to engage patients, but also as a way of care delivery itself in their own practices. And you work probably more with with these types of practices than I do, just based on the nature um, of our firm. But sometimes in venture, you know, we deal with a lot of companies in what I'll call the the white space, right? So electric scooters, or um, we have a you know now new market for cannabis, and what's that going to look like? And there's you know bigger questions of do we want this yes or do we want this no? Like that's not the case, in my opinion with this new crop of DTC companies. They are here and they can work together with our existing infrastructure. They're not in a white space. They're in a heavily regulated space. They're providing a new care delivery on established infrastructure. You know, my hope is that a primary, a strong primary care physician model for some can work in conjunction with these companies. The rise in popularity, do you think it's attributable to things that these new companies are doing right? Or that uh, some of the established traditional medical providers are doing wrong? There's clearly an unmet need in the primary care market um, with what some of these companies are doing. And I think part of it comes to, to take a step back. When you see some of the criticisms and questions of, well, what is lost in a DTC encounter? And what are we missing? Underneath all that and, and ignoring the rise of popularity here is there's a romanticization of primary care and what that experience is like for, you know, the majority of people. I'm not sure the exact stat. Millennials under the age of 30, 40% don't have a primary care physician. It's 30 days on average for an appointment. I think 40% of the time is spent, you know, only on clinical needs. So if we are going to really look at the needs that the direct-to-consumer model um, is addressing, we have to have a realistic um, sense of, of where the primary care experience is for people right now. And often that is no connection to a provider. There's not a continuity of care. And so it's wanting to get in where you know you have an issue that you want to get taken care of and you want to do so on your own time in a convenient, affordable, and accessible way. And the system right now is not set up for that. And so that is, you know, where, as I said, these companies have been able to build on existing practices, bring them together and focus on the patient and the customer patient experience in a way that's been very receptive. It sounds like what you're saying, at least in part, is that uh, the rise of, of DTC telehealth, it's not like an invasive species, but rather the result of shortcomings in the existing way that traditional healthcare is provided and new expectations of the uh, upcoming patient population. Absolutely. Lots of people have talked about this, that, you know, we do e-banking, we do e-shopping, like the rise of the new population um, or the younger population is expecting a care delivery in a certain way. It's not you know, unusual for them to be filling out uh, a type of interview and expressing themselves that way. A lot of people still prefer, you know, face-to-face in-person care, but it's it's not accessible. Um, it takes, you know, 
quite a bit of time. It takes time to get an appointment. The convenience is lost. You're filling out forms four times, and then the doctor is also entering them. And so a streamlined model like this, where you can you know, have something like your birth control taken care of, is really appealing to a lot of people. You know, Ann Mont Johnson, who's CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, wrote a great short blog post um, this past spring that really, you know, challenged readers to to look at these DTC companies and and think about what we can learn from them because they're clearly resonating with consumers and patients and they're engaging them in new ways. So rather than solely criticizing them and you know questioning their care delivery. she called for an understanding and trying to bridge the gap there um, to help better understand how they're engaging patients and um, how they're delivering care. You know, what's your take on a lot of the recent, I'll call it criticisms or critiques of these emerging models, leaving aside the marketing critiques, right? Yeah, I think that's a fair concern. People in general, whether it's in person or virtual, they, they put a certain amount of faith in the their treating professional, physician, NP, whatever, and uh, the, the treating professional needs to step up. And when you scale it in such a way that you have a lot of like companies like offering these online services, even if they're not the medical provider themselves, I do feel like that they embrace their obligation to ensure that the patients or uh, consumers or users are getting um, safe and appropriate care. It depends on the patient's specific clinical uh, use case and scenario. Not every condition or, or uh, is appropriate for virtual, um, just like it would be inappropriate to do an in-person care without uh, required diagnostics and just shoot from the hip. And the big but is, I think if we actually were to take a look at the data, it would show that um, this isn't widespread uh, panic or patients getting hurt. And so we could talk about a couple points. The first is malpractice claims in general. The premiums typically are equal or lower uh, for virtual services than they are for identical in-person. Why is that? Premiums are a direct result of uh, payouts and settlements by the malpractice carriers. And if there aren't a bunch of payouts and settlements, the premiums aren't very high. Um, Right now, it's pretty affordable to get uh, malpractice insurance for telehealth and virtual care services. Uh, The second is uh, Dr. Joe Cavadar. He's the current president of the American Telemedicine Association and a physician at Partners Healthcare, Mass General Hospital, did a very interesting study that was published in a JAMA note in which uh, he and his colleagues took a look at one random month from 2018 and said, let's unpack this idea of DTC telehealth and malpractice. And so they found every publicly available um, DTC telehealth case that was adjudicated by like a judge or arbitrator or whatever um, that alleged med mal. And there was about 500 of them. And uh, they did the literature review. Every single one of the scenarios, the, the, the judge determined that there was not medical malpractice. Now, that doesn't mean there's a causal correlation that there's no malpractice in DTC telehealth. But it does show that uh, of that entire month and that selection, there was zero. And the authors attributed they they were again this is just an early thing and they but they speculated that some of the reasons may be that it's low acuity by and large, but also that the DTC companies in particular are really dialing it in. They're not playing shortstop trying to handle every random patient need that comes across uh, 
their desk like you see in walk-in clinics, right? Which can be a nightmare for a junior doctor to kind of do pick up weekend shifts of that. You know, that's just do your best kid and uh, hope they don't die. Um, but these telehealth companies say, you know what? We're not going to treat everybody or everything. We're going to do one or two things and we're going to really dial it in very well to minimize the likelihood that there will be mistakes or patient harm. And I actually kind of appreciate that uh, concept. It's almost like the fox versus the hedgehog philosophical idea. Do one thing, do it really, really well, and repeat. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think in some ways they're operating almost like specialists, right? And in, in, in the condition-specific arena that, as you said, do one thing and do it really well. Um, and I also agree with you that the stakes are high. We've, their care delivery should meet certain standards. Um, I think where I get frustrated is there's always this kind of comparison, right? So how was patient X treated versus how would they be treated in person? And there's so many assumptions that always go into that whenever that kind of model is set up, uh, particularly in the media. But, you know, we saw it um, in the recent JAMA piece. And there's an example in there. And I, I think the JAMA piece asks really good questions. I do. I, I, and I think if they spent more time with some of the DTC companies you and I both work with, there'd be more comfort. Um, but in it, they give the example of, um, you know, what if a woman gets birth control through one of these apps. And the question is, well, what is, you know, what is lost? And that's always how it's framed. You know, what's lost in this encounter? And so they, they say, you know, if someone is getting birth control via an app, they perhaps are losing the uh, chance to speak with a provider about longer term uh, options, birth control options, such as uh, an IUD. That's, that's the example that they get. And, I think there's a lot in there to kind of unpack. I mean, the first is, which we've said before, is this kind of romanticization of what the primary care experience is going to be like, you know, that I bet if you talk to a lot of women, they've seen a doctor about birth control and had no questions, had had no suggestions about an IUD. That's just not something that always happens, um, leaving aside whether that's the ideal standard and it should, right? Um, the second kind of assumption built in there is that the alternative to care is necessarily for that patient going to be going into the brick and mortar because that's that's just not true. So the alternative to the care there is more than likely no care at all. There was a study that came out about pharmacists prescribing an organ of birth control, and it showed that I think for 75% of the Medicaid patients who were getting um, their birth control for from the pharmacist, they were not currently on any, right? So in the absence of that new innovative care delivery model of pharmacist prescribing, there you know, very likely would not have been um, contraception. We need to kind of you know, rethink that assumption. And then the third is what is gained. And I know, especially in some of these specialist conditions, there's, they're stigmatized. Some of the providers that I've spoken with said people are much uh, more upfront and honest in in these asynchronous type of structured interviews than they would be in the office. So what might be gained is is more information and more data points to make a decision. Um, what might be gained is clinicians not having to remember, you know, every possible question to answer or every interaction to think about um, because a good 
asynchronous interview is going to have built in clinical protocols, evidence-based guidelines, and, you know, other checks to really help direct the patient's attention to the, excuse me, direct the provider's attention to the patient's core needs. Here's a hot take. DTC telehealth does not itself contribute to the siloization of medical services. Rather, we could solve that by having an interoperability and a unified medical record. Agree, disagree. Yeah, agree. I mean, <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I think fragmented care, siloed care generally, it, it's not just DTC, right? Again, I was talking about the rise of convenient care. So sometimes people have said, well, what if somebody is on one of these DTC platforms and gets, you know, an acne medication or medication for their migraines and then their other doctor isn't aware of that visit. Well, the same thing can happen if they go to a retail a retail clinic or an urgent care clinic um, with a similar issue. It's The interoperability is not something that is specific to the DTC market. Let's talk health policy and DTC. You're still a lawyer, right? Yes. Uh, DTC, telehealth. Does the industry need more regulation? I think the industry needs better regulation and more thoughtful uh kind of patient-centric regulation. That's going to be the, the challenge going forward. We've spent a lot of time talking about consumers, that pa- patients as consumers are playing a different role in this new ecosystem. And so how are we going to continue to bal- you know, have that right balance between providing you know, patients more options and more choice, but also ensuring that safe quality care. So that's always going to be the tension. I think on the telehealth front right now, as I said, we need kind of better thoughtful regulation. Someone wrote in an article that um, DTC telemedicine companies are operating in a regulatory vacuum. It's been picked up a few times. And I think that is incredibly surprising to um, the DTC companies and the lawyers that they pay, that there's no, that they're in this kind of regulatory vacuum. Um, they're not right. So, and you know, this, I know this, there's 51 medical boards, there's 51 pharmacy boards. Um, there's state AGs. We have the FDA, we have the FTC, there's HIPAA, there's HHS. And then we have the unofficial regulators of payers. Um, so the idea that there's, you know, kind of no regulation here in these in this space um, is just not accurate. We need more consistency and predictability between the states as to, you know, across the board, kind of what are acceptable modes of care when we're delivering care via um, telemedicine. Um, and I think we're getting there. I think you and I agree that that eventually all states hopefully will have some uniformity and that. The modality of care is inconsequential if the standard of care is being met. And I mean, that's a really astute observation. So, for example, right, you have modalities, uh, three buckets, audio, video, interactive audio, and, and async. What's your take on why, why those even came to, came to be, right? Why, why states even had those as opposed to using something like Florida's law? You know, secure electronic communications between a patient in one place and a doctor in another. Right, which is a great law. Go Florida. Um, because I think that the evolution and the understanding of this care delivery is happening. And so we moved, you know, when we moved from in-person brick and mortar, it's like we have to mirror what's happening exactly, right? So we have a video requirement. 
And then there's a little bit more comfort with, well, if we have information, but there's a live kind of audio interaction, then we're okay. And then as technology gets more sophisticated, consumer preferences are changing. And we say, you know, we can streamline this. And for some patients, a adaptive, interactive, um, you know, structured asynchronous interview is acceptable. In parallel with that, there's always bad actors, right? So we see around 2007, 2008, the use of pharmacies having static questionnaires that lead to all, all sorts of inappropriate prescribing, including of controlled substances. And the, the correction there is, you know, let's ban any type of prescribing with, a, with an online questionnaire. Um, the problem when you do that, I, in my opinion, from a policy perspective, is that, you know, technology is always evolving, right? So what did a questionnaire mean in 2008 versus what does a detailed medical interview mean right now? That's not the questionnaire they had in mind. That's not what they meant. In 2008, they're talking about where there's eight questions and you're filling in bubbles. But when you stick to that, that requires a, you know, kind of constant updating of rules. And I think that the, the other part is you can end up, and not using this with the questionnaire example, you can have, you know, a lot of unintended consequences. One of the big promises, obviously, we all know this about telemedicine was reaching people in rural areas um, where there's physician shortages. Well, if you're requiring that every patient interaction is going to require a video in places that have low low broadband, you're furthering health inequities with a policy that you were hoping was going to broaden access. So, you know, when you push it back to the, the real question, which is, you know, does the physician have the appropriate information to take the next step? You, that's really what should be driving, you know, the standards of um, how this is practiced versus let's pick synchronous, let's pick asynchronous, let's pick, you know, a combo of both. Um, we lose sight of, of what the objective is there. Um, Dr. Hollander always says, or has said, and I love this quote, like, it shouldn't matter whether the care is delivered on the fifth floor or the third floor of the hospital. And the same way, it shouldn't matter whether the care is delivered in the office or at someone's home through telemedicine. The question is whether the standard of care is being met. Uh, Jed, Jed Hollander from Jefferson, yes. right? Yes. He's hilarious. I remember he gave a, he was giving a speech and in support of facility fees and, and, and equal reimbursement rates for telehealth. Cause he's like, what do you expect the doctors just to stand outside <laughs> in the park and, and put on a headset? <laughs> what if it rains? You know, he's yeah. a good guy. Uh, yeah. I think those are really good points. And you know, some people beat up on the medical boards and say, Oh, aren't you angry at the medical boards? And no, of course not. I think that these, uh, Physicians, largely volunteer uh, positions, by the way, are trying their best, but it's really hard. Doctors don't like other people, particularly lawyers, telling them how to practice medicine. And doctors uh, shouldn't be practicing law yeah. either. And so you had this really uh, awkward or difficult challenge in the starting about a decade ago with a bunch of people asking boards of medicine to come up with rules for telemedicine to keep patients safe. 
And uh, since then, as you said, technology, not just technology, but a bit more of a sophisticated model language or policy has evolved and we're starting to see it spread. I wonder if you think that it, do you think it's time or useful or appropriate to have uh, an update to the Federation of State Medical Board's uh, 2014 SMART guidelines on the use of telehealth? Or do you think we're even past that? You know, there, there has to be some type of sensible guardrails put in place, right? That there's some practices that will never meet minimally competent standards. Um, like, for example, a static questionnaire where you answer five questions and it has nothing personalized or tailored um, to the patient. But I think a, a broader policy that is similar to Florida that, again, says you're expected to follow, you know, the same standards you would in office this is, you know, what telemedicine is and, you know, taking the appropriate consents and making the adjustments when, when are needed, excuse me, which are needed to account for technology. But I mean, on the flip side of your question, now I'm thinking of it kind of both ways, like, are we eventually getting to a point where we're not in telemedicine versus medicine, right? Are we going to get to a point where there aren't, there isn't even a separate set of rules? Um, Maybe. There was just one other thing I was just thinking about when we were talking about medical boards, because I do want to, I agree with you. They are not the enemies here in crafting telemedicine policy. And I think a lot of it is, you know, they understand how to practice medicine, but it's up to a lot of the companies using this and health systems to explain the technology part. The internet prescribing activities from like illegal online pharmacies, almost uh, what you know 15 maybe 20 years ago and the uh, cast along shadow mm-hmm. and those internet prescribing rules which exist now in about 41 42 states uh, are still on the books and they have they can be reconciled with um, telemedicine rules for sure but I think that they cast an even broader shadow as well and that's probably the next three to five years if not shorter of what some of the pure async DTC companies will have to work uh, on to educate the boards and lawmakers to say, look, I hear why you uh, enacted that rule, you know, a decade and a half ago made sense. Then it's application now is too broad for the current state. And let's uh, square that circle. And I think it's actually, if you look at the trends of how, how quickly these state uh, laws and rules have changed, it really is going that way. Uh, only about a dozen states now mandate an interactive modality to create a valid doctor-patient relationship, which is very different than how it was five years right. ago to say uh, nothing of ten. Right, and and I I totally agree with that, and I and I, as I said, I encourage companies in this space, and you do as well, to, you know, point out why it's too broad, and that there are ways to still make sure those types of actors, you know, aren't being allowed to flourish and good actors who, you know, want to have a safe, accessible, you know, high quality care experience can, can do so and reach new patients. And that balance is possible. Are there, and are there going to continue to be people in a quote unquote DTC market who are not acting appropriately? Yes. Will there continue to be care providers in the brick and mortar space um, who are not providing appropriate care? Yes. Um, but so that's always a tension that we are going to have. 
All right, Ms. Sheehan, you're hired. I'm a DTC company. I'm an entrepreneur. I just I just landed uh, uh, some funding uh, from a venture capital firm, and I want to distinguish myself as a good actor. Right. right? Hit me with it. What am I supposed to do? Give me some tips. So. I think the first thing, if you're if you're interested, here's what entrepreneurs do well, um, in my experience, or when I talk to them when they come. If they're in the DTC space, I'm guessing if they've got funding, they have come up with a way to build market share, to attract, to engage, all those marketing aspects that we hit on earlier. Um, but we're you know, entrepreneurs can go wrong and can go right uh, in this space is you know, have you brought on the medical talent to deliver care, right? So you can take the, what you've learned from selling razors and mattresses to bring in more patients, that type of marketing, but you better realize you're not selling mattresses and razors. So bring on a medical advisor, build out an informal network of your medical team, and don't just put them on your website. That's who needs to be informing uh, your process of how the conditions are going to be treated on your site, what conditions you will treat, which conditions are inappropriate to treat, um, what patients are inappropriate to be treated via telemedicine. And you need to have you know, physicians or nurse practitioners or other types of clinicians informing what you do. Um, so that's kind of, you know, with our team here, if we see somebody that only has the marketing plan but hasn't thought through you know, or worked with um, clinicians on coming up with protocols uh, and, and has evidence-based reasons if they have a asynchronous platform for, you know, how they're going to be treating. Um, that to me is sometimes, not sometimes, it is a red flag. Know my lane, know what I'm good at, own the fact that I'm doing a medical yeah. service and get the medical get, advisors yeah. for it. And right? then, yeah. <laughs> okay, get the advisors. Second thing is, once you're launched, continue to build out your best practices. Talk to your network of physicians. Find out what's working and what is not working. Find out, you know, how you can take whatever existing infrastructure you built and made it better. You know, where are the patients saying that there's a need? Is there more need for the follow-up care, the care coordination part? You know, continue thinking about how, you know, I will say what these companies do well and is putting at least the ones that... I know or am familiar with is, you know, the patients are really at the center of their care. So, you know, continue to learn of like how you can um, improve your own processes. So that would be kind of second is it's not done once you've, you know, got to gone to market and any good entrepreneur knows that, but, you know, recognize where you're meeting needs and where you're falling short and continue to improve upon that. I think the third, and we've kind of hit on this is, Educate, you know, educate your patients, educate to the extent you're getting questions from the media, educate regulators, you know, there are information gaps all along that continuum. So some things that they might be pinpointing as problematic with your model might just be they don't understand that their brick and mortar provider is doing the same thing, right? Um, they don't understand that the type of asynchronous structured questionnaire you're using is the same one that Kaiser uses, right? Or the same type of technology. So, you know, I think the best companies are the ones that take the opportunity to explain what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're safely, you know, meeting the standard of care. 
those would be my, my three big ones. Get medical advisors offer bona fide services in a patient-centered uh, manner to continually improve. And then uh, don't stop there, but continue to educate yourself on, on, I guess, all the different rules. And educating your patients as to, you know, how you're treating them and why. And, and you know, this is the conditions you're serving or these are the types of services you're providing. Um, we haven't totally talked on this, but like something else about the consumer today is transparency. And that goes into the patient as being um, more in charge of their their own healthcare decisions, whether through cost um, or just on an information basis. So being you know transparent about what it is that you're providing at at a cost level, at a care level, um, is another thing that I think some DTC companies here have done really well. That's really good advice. As a startup entrepreneur, it sounds like a lot of work. Do you think I could just launch, try to buff up my valuation, and then handle all that clinical and ethical and regulatory stuff after the fact? It's not a break things and move fast. I, I think that is the wrong way in the healthcare space, again. So this is a different arena. And so some of the things that startups have done well have lent itself to the popularity of this model. There's a lot of great things we can do here, right, with healthcare, but these uh, the, the stakes are higher. The expectations are different. They're way higher. I think that that is a, a also a, a misperception of because something is, you know, venture backed or people point to Theranos or whatnot, that everyone's kind of operating that way of build press, get people excited and figure out everything later. Um, I do think entrepreneurs, as with in, in any space and, you know, are learning that being an innovator in a really entrenched industry like this that is heavily regulated is difficult, right? It's it, And even if some of these models aren't as capital intensive as other healthcare innovations, they're still regulatory intensive. And I, I think my experience and probably yours as well, I'd be interested, is that I'd particularly be interested in yours because you deal more with brick, I imagine some brick and mortar providers. A lot of these entrepreneurs know regulation, um, and they should, but more than any other space that I'm in, any other space that I work in. Um, and I think they probably know more than a lot of traditional providers. So, you know, they're cognizant of it. Um, the good ones are, and the ones that will succeed, you know, have to have to understand the stakes. I, mean, I, I would think that's right. You know, if you ask the question, the companies that we work with, they tend to uh, say, look, we want to do things right. We might not know what the rules are, but we understand healthcare is highly regulated and, and the stakes are high. Also, I really like to hear from clients uh, sometimes when they say, you know what, I know we could do it this way, use this particular modality or this scale, but we think it's it's the, our best patient experience because of the nature of the clinical services we're doing to be a bit more hands-on or do it this particular way. Because they're not just looking for scale and a quick exit. They're saying, I want to build something that actually uh, matters, will make a difference in people's lives in a, in a meaningful way. You're giving birth to something new. Um, I think that's a really good measure of success, more more so than like, oh, what'd you exit for? I mean, because it's just ones and zeros at the end of the day. Having the freedom in the policy sphere, right, to choose the modality or or how that care delivery might be framed, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you have to use I'm giving an example for asynchronous, 
for all cases and for all patients, right? It's it's that type of nuance that, as you just mentioned, the good entrepreneurs are recognizing that, you know, if the patient is driving this, then having, you know, for example, both modalities, if they want to move to video or if they want a phone call to like, you know, that's another thing that that separates in my mind, you know, the the best actors in the space is being able to, you know, be responsive to patient needs there. Quinn, you've mentioned earlier information gaps and need to educate, learn upon the rules, um, as well as maybe a growing effort to uh, coalesce all the different DTC async companies uh, to to develop more of a cohesive uh, policy. Uh, What are some resources or opportunities that uh, uh, listeners could turn to to explore that? Sure. So luckily, um, you and I are both working on one that I'm very excited about, which is through uh, the ATA, the American Telemedicine Association. And they have launched an initiative with DTC companies to um, recognizing some of the information gaps we've talked about and the misperceptions um, around asynchronous care or just misunderstood, you know, not enough information. And I, I think the goals of it are great, which is, you know, to start building consistent messaging for both industry, for regulators, for the press to understand, you know, what asynchronous care is and what this growing field is to, you know, build confidence in it and give a more fuller understanding of how um, this quality care is being delivered and what benefits it brings to the patients and also, which is often ignored, what benefits it has for providers. Yeah, I think that could be a good one. Um, another one that I, I think anybody listening here, if they want it, it's, it's free, it's publicly available. It's uh, the telehealth resource centers. There are about 12 or 13 of them regional. They're federally grant funded. And they're a phenomenal resource for questions on um, all things telehealth, as well as the Center for Connected Health Policy run by uh, Executive Director Mei Kwong out in California, which maintains a, a free publicly available database with all sorts of uh, telehealth laws and rules and uh, Medicaid reimbursement information. I echo your endorsement of them as well. And um, for those interested in California policy, they have a California Telehealth Coalition. And I know some of the other resource centers also um, have coalitions for specific states. Shout out to the TRCs for sure. Yes. yes. Uh, Quinn, this is, sounds like a boring question, right? But hey, what was your first experience with telehealth? What got you into this digital health space? So this is this is pretty crazy. But um, I had severe asthma as a child, um, and I'm actually one of six kids, and five of us had asthma. And so um, we were the perfect research subjects for our um, – immunologist who had a research uh, facility in the back of his doctor's office. We did lots of studies. And when I'm dating myself here, but about 25 years ago, they brought out this, uh, what's called a peak flow meter measures your air capacity. So I'd be taking a medicine and then I'd have to register to see what my uh, airflow would be. Um, And he brought it in and it was this little computer monitor and was like coolest thing me, my mom, even the doctor, we were kind of all giddy about it. And then he pulled um, back the bottom and it had a telephone jack. And he said, you know, you don't need to come into the office anymore um, to have your measurements recorded. Um, You can send them through the phone line, through your own house. And 
you know, ever since that moment, I, and I know this sounds cheesy, but it is true because it's something, you know, I kind of lived, I've always had an interest in kind of healthcare innovations and in new ways um, for care to be delivered. And in being part of studies, I was always getting to see kind of the latest treatments. Um, I mean, might explain how I am today that I did all these research studies, but, um, you know, I was always able to see kind of on the front lines of, you know, what people were thinking about um, to move the ball forward. So I would actually say like, since I was seven or eight, I guess I, I got to experience telehealth. I love it. I hear all these people like talking. Yeah, these people like, oh, yeah, I've been in the space for, you know, 10 years. And you're like, please, I've been doing RPM since I was eight years old. <laughs> Quinn, where can people uh, learn more about, about what you do? Look us up on Tusk Strategies. Um, and please reach out um, if you're in this space, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an attorney, if you're someone interested in policy. I love meeting and sharing ideas um, with more people, you know, who are, are working in the virtual care world and um, let them know what's going on on the policy front and learning um, what you're up to. So please uh, reach out. Quinn Sheehan, Tusk Strategies, thank you for being here today. It was uh, a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Nate. I look I look forward to continuing this these, these fun conversations, nerding out on telehealth. <laughs> we'll pass it back to you, Judy. Thank you, Nate, and thank you to Quinn Sheen from Tusk Strategies for a great show. There's so much potential in using DTC telemedicine to approach medical services. Patients are looking for ways to take control of their health, and DTC telemedicine is a different approach to bring more patients into the fold. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. Thank you for joining us.